are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight we conclude our short three-part series on hell. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans, chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 24. You'll find this on page 945 of the Pew Bible. 18 through 24 of chapter 9. Hear the word of God. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As you probably know, in Romans 9, Paul is considering the deep mystery of God's sovereign election. Out of the mass of fallen humanity, God chooses some to eternal life. The rest are passed over and left to themselves who go to their own ruin. And God is not to blame for their unbelief. They freely choose to reject the Savior. So if a man perishes, he himself is to blame. And if he's saved, God gets all the credit. Neither race, nor age, nor gender, nor position in society have anything to do with it. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul makes it clear that a sinner can be saved only and exclusively if God extends mercy. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if salvation depends entirely on God, says the rejecter, why is anyone held accountable? Well, that's not a genuine question posed by a sincere inquirer after truth, to be honest with you. Such an objection is the protest of a defiant critic who denies the truth. If, in fact, he says, God is sovereign, as you say, then he is to blame for my ruin. You see, Paul is not dealing here with a person who's sincerely puzzled by his teaching. This is an unbeliever who wants to quarrel with God and assign blame to him. And so Paul says, who are you, O man, 
to answer back to God. You see, he's assuming that the Lord has the right to deal with fallen humanity any way that he sees fit. And let's not forget that God is dealing in this way with fallen humanity, sinful humanity. Paul is not saying here that God creates people in order to punish them. Rather, God has the right to deal with sinful humans according to justice. That's what he's saying. I want you to imagine with me going to death row and assuming you had the authority, out of pity, you decided to free one of those criminals and to provide him with a home. All of his bills, you pay. All of his food, you supply. All of his needs, you meet. And you did this purely out of mercy and a good heart. Now, the rest of the inmates begin talking, and they criticize you for being unfair because you didn't take them home. That's exactly what this person is saying. According to God's sovereign good pleasure, he extends mercy to the elect. And according to the same sovereign pleasure, he passes by and condemns the rest. And the potter has rights over the clay to do with it whatever he wants. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? You see, he endures the sins of the former in order to delight the souls of the latter. It's all part of God's eternal purpose, all according to his sovereign decree. And as we noted, Paul is not saying that God created people just to destroy them. They were prepared for wrath, not as creatures, but as sinners. The sin for which they're punished did not arise from the Lord himself in no way. These vessels of wrath fitted themselves for a just punishment. Because God is not the author of sin. He is not obliged as well to save anybody who has sinned. And if left to ourselves, deprived of grace, we stumble, we fall, we're judged, and we go to hell. And the question tonight is why? What is the purpose of hell? Why not just annihilate them? What is the grand overarching plan for it? Because I sympathize with those who recoil from this awful doctrine. It is an awful doctrine. But it is mistaken sentimentality that denies the plain teaching of the Bible. I didn't write it. God did. From a human perspective, eternal misery is utterly overwhelming. Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem because he foresaw their eternal ruin, never ending, no hope. For the elect, he suffered and died to deliver them from this horror. And he is the one, Jesus himself, who spoke more about hell and more clearly and fully than anybody else. He did so not only in obedience to God, his Father, but he also did so out of love for mankind. 
So tonight we seek to better understand the fourfold purpose of hell. First, hell glorifies the majesty of God because it's there where his power shines forth. There is in scripture a parallel drawn between the majesty and the power of God. Listen to Exodus 15, 7 in the Song of Moses. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. So Pharaoh and his army were defeated by God in the midst of the Red Sea. And it was the Lord's doing, and it was an act of almighty power. And according to the Song of Moses, this exercise of God's power is an undeniable proof of his majesty. He's a majestic God. Another parallel is drawn between his majesty and power by the psalmist in Psalm 29.4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. His voice can be heard in the great floodwaters of judgment, and its deafening boom can be heard in the thunderclaps at Mount Sinai. That majestic speech of God was enough to make even Moses tremble. God is able to make the highest man shudder and the proudest man quake. His voice is heard both in nature and in grace, in the world and in the gospel, and nothing is as imposing and authoritative and majestic as God's power. And perhaps nowhere is his power unleashed more splendidly than in hell. Because you see, that's where the devil and his followers will be forever punished. We're told by John in the book of Revelation that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. I want you to show me a greater display of divine power. I want you to show me an exhibition of God's majesty that surpasses that. Eternal punishment will be the never-ending tribute to his absolute holiness. And all of those who mocked God, most notably the devil himself, will be recompensed. God will not be insulted with impunity, and no one will be exempt from this penalty. As Paul says, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And Satan and his infernal hosts will be forever in agony under torment because of the almighty power of God, and that glorifies his majestic name. The wicked who rejected Christ will be forever consigned to hell. And that will be a vivid demonstration of the infinite majesty of our God, because it will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that no power raised in opposition to him will ever prevail. Job says, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? You see, God is able to carry out his threats and endlessly punish evildoers. He's able to do it. And he's not just able, he's willing. By his infinite power, he will sustain their existence in the lake of fire. 
With one hand he will hold them up, and with the other he will punish them. And this is in part how God's infinite majesty will be glorified in eternity. Paul says in Romans 9, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So as the millennia roll on, age following age, the damned will glorify his majesty. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I echo the sentiments of Elihu, who declared, God is clothed with awesome majesty. That's reason number one. Purpose number one. The second purpose is this, that hell glorifies the justice of God, who will by no means clear the guilty. It's not just his majesty, but it's his inflexible justice that is glorified. Justice is one of the divine perfections that deserves public display. And such an exhibition of retributive justice in punishing the wicked is glorious. Right now, we may not see it that way, but eternity will prove otherwise. We understand, I think, the glory of distributive justice. In other words, dispersing rewards and benefits. That's glorious. We understand that. Christ will reward the glorified saints in accord with what they've done in the body. For example, his master said to the one who received five talents, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Distributive justice. That's easily accepted. Well, if we, were, if we believe in Christ's distributive justice, then we must believe in his retributive justice. Vessels of wrath will be for their sin inflicted with the agonies of hell. And that's perfectly just. Their impenitent treason deserves eternal wrath. And the glory of divine justice will be openly displayed in their public punishment. Because God loves righteousness and he hates wickedness and he will punish all and every sin. And when iniquity receives its just recompense, his glory will shine forth. Just think of all the judgments in the ancient world. Among them, the flood, perhaps, was the greatest. The proliferation of wickedness was so great that God destroyed all flesh. And the Bible repeatedly celebrates his justice in bringing about the deluge. Psalm 29 again. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Or consider the burning and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God upheld justice and vindicated his word and magnified his glory. And these public demonstrations vindicated the perfection of his justice. It's one of the pillars that support his government. And justice must be upheld. So hell is not the sadistic gratification of some type of eternal tyrant. It's the just and proportionate penalty meted out by a righteous judge. As Paul says of the wicked in Romans 3, their condemnation is just. 
Those in hell by law will suffer to the glory of God's unyielding justice. We read in Psalm 11, for example, let God rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. And I believe personally that apart from the cross at Calvary, there is no display of his justice that compares with the splendor of hell. The New Testament reveals God's unyielding justice shown brightly at the cross. At Calvary, where he punished his own incarnate son, the throne of God was magnified. Paul says he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, so that not even the everlasting love between the Father and the Son could override his justice. On that cross, Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, and he suffered hell. And the rationale behind his indescribable suffering is clearly stated in Romans 3.26. I quote, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So hell is one of the most enduring and exquisite exhibitions of divine justice. That's where we see the full perfect, unending execution of his wrath, and it is right. There is no injustice in the certain, terrifying, eternal punishment of the wicked. In the world to come, they will beg for annihilation, but they will do so vainly. They will long for any kind of relief to escape that infinite wrath of God, but they will never do so because the justice of God will be applauded by the vast crowd of redeemed saints. John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So it glorifies his majesty. It glorifies his justice. And then third, hell glorifies the grace of God as the backdrop for his kindness to believers. Now, you know this, I think, in your experience that a diamond always shines more brightly against a black velvet cloth. In the same way, the gospel shines most brilliantly against the darkness of hell. The glory of God's grace may be heightened by the shrieks of the damned. And this is one of the reasons why redemption is called a great salvation. Jesus Christ, by his death and enduring hell in our place, has saved us from the punishment of hell. He rescues you and me from the everlasting burning of the lake of fire. It's a a deliverance from the unmitigated horrors of eternal torment 
And surely that has to be great which delivers us from such a terrible plight. So in this stark contrast, God's grace sparkles with meridian strength. The penalty of hell accentuates for us just how great salvation really is. Sinners dangle over the bottomless pit in Jonathan Edwards' fashion like spiders hanging by a strand. And each moment of their existence, they're exposed to the final irrecoverable doom that their sins deserve. And the only thing keeping them from plunging into ruin is God's patience. And unless a sinner repents, he will perish without a single ray of hope. As set against that backdrop, the misery and the darkness of hell, grace is radiant. Every glorified saint will see the eternal misery that he escaped or she escaped by faith in Christ. So a sermon on hell tonight might give a faint glimpse of salvation's glory, but in eternity, you and I are going to have a full, clear, direct, intense view of hell. Looking into the pit of hell, we will see with our own eyes the agony that we averted through Christ. And in that full view of perdition, the work of redemption will be glorious. No wonder it's such a terrible thing to disregard, disregard the gospel in this life. The apostle says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So it glorifies his majesty. It glorifies his justice. It glorifies his grace. Number four, the purpose of hell. It gladdens the saints. It fills their hearts with joy and gratitude. And this is closely related to the previous point, I understand that. But it makes it more personal. God formed for himself a people who will declare his praise. And in the new heaven and earth, we will sing his praises to the glory of his name. And our privilege will be to magnify him in whatever way reveals his glory. And one of those ways will be the everlasting punishment of the damned. And another way will be the eternal blessedness of the redeemed. The agony of the damned, the blessedness of the redeemed, both of these saints will praise him and declare his excellency. He is the first cause and he is the highest end and he deserves to be praised and hell was made primarily for the spectators, not for the participants. Let me say that again. Hell was made primarily for the spectators, you and I in heaven, not for the participants. That may sound strange. It may even sound contradictory. Didn't I just say that hell served to satisfy and magnify God's justice? Yes, but that serves to glorify God, not the good of the damned. The sufferers are only useful in their suffering. It glorifies God. It gladdens the saints. So one main purpose of hell is the gladdening of those in heaven. And by this, I don't mean, don't leave this place thinking that I'm saying it's going to be a source from which we can glut our desire for revenge. That's not what it's about. 
But in glorifying God's majesty, we rejoice and are glad in his praise. All of his and our enemies will be gathered together and condemned as a group. And every oppressed saint who ever suffered will be totally vindicated. And therefore, hell will be one reason for the intense gladness among the saints. As we behold the misery of the damned, we will celebrate heaven's happiness. And based on those two perspectives, the degree of happiness will be doubled. We are going to celebrate and give thanks for the justified misery of the wicked. I know it seems awful to comprehend. But we will think God's thoughts after him. We will love what God loves and we will hate what God hates. Right now it seems to us like an awful, heart-wrenching doctrine. But as glorified disciples, we will appreciate the weight of his majesty and the glory of his justice and the greatness of our salvation and the joy of heaven. That awaits us. So let's not by mere sentimentality dismiss the importance of hell. Because we will join with the 24 elders saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. May God enable us to appreciate this doctrine, which is sobering and yet will prove the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is sobering truth. It's not something that we would have come up with ourselves, but it's something you've revealed and as difficult as it may be for us to accept in this life, we pray that you'll help us to appreciate these purposes, understanding that you are infinitely wise and eternally loving, and you know what is best. So we trust you, and now we sing your praise, but the help of your spirit, through the mediation of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.